Today's episode is brought to you by Groups Recover Together. Groups is an outpatient opioid use disorder treatment program committed to helping its members build a life worth living while sober. Groups' mission is to make effective, high-quality treatment for heroin or pain pill addiction access to all who need help, regardless of who they are and where they live. Their treatment model strongly lends on harm reduction, medication-assisted treatment, community, and whole-person care to help individuals break the cycle of addiction to get their lives back on track. Groups is currently located in 12 states where they offer both in-person and virtual treatment options. To learn more about groups and how they might be able to help you, you can call my toll-free number, 888-326-2154. That's 24-7 hotline, or click the link in the bio. What's up, you guys? Welcome to the Jessica Kent Podcast. I am your host, Jessica Kent, and I know it's been a really long time since I recorded for you, but, you know, life is kind of crazy. So I am not alone today. I have my friend Jen Cutting here from New York, and we're going to chop it up with you guys and talk about mental health and talk about the ways that you can help your family members and loved ones with mental health, and it's just going to be a laid-back episode. If you've been following me on my YouTube channel, you know that I am very open with my battles with suicidal thoughts, mental health, depression, chronic insomnia, anxiety, and all of the crazy things that I deal with in my brain. Um, So that's what today's episode is. Let's welcome Jen. Hi. It is super uncomfortable in my filming space because we have two mics in our mouth and I have different boom arms and the whole setup is just chaotic. It's just weird. I feel like I have like, I'm afraid I'm going to hit it or, you know, if I try and lick my lips, I'm going to lick the microphone. It's just it's fine just lick it it's weird it's totally cool yeah great podcasting is is exciting it feels like we're on a radio show uh-huh <laughs> sure so i'm a radio station kid i grew up you know in a small town and my dad you know has worked at a radio station my entire life so having a microphone in my mouth it's not it's not weird to me this is awkward for me <laughs> If you guys watch my vlog channel, you'll see um, I kind of gave you guys a tour of the radio mm-hmm. station, and it's nothing special, but it means so much to me and, and my family. And well, don't say that. It's not nothing special. It's very it's special. Not fancy is it's, what I meant. Okay, so maybe it's not fancy, but the area that we live in, mm, like the fanciest thing is my hair color. Like seriously, <laughs> there's nothing fancy there. So, but it's special. It's very special. It's part of your story. It's part of your recipe to become who you are. It's very special. I equate the 607, which is where we're from, to like the giver. You know how like no one can see color? Only one person can see color. Like it's so gray there. So, okay. So for you, you have like this different vision of what it is because everything there was bad for you. There was no good there for you. For me, it's the complete opposite. Yes, it was very dark and dismal at one point in time, but then I came back and it's – I have a completely – different aspect of it. I love it. Like I love the small town. I love that, you know, I can find out who needs help through this person, through that person. In an area like this, I don't think I would be as successful or be able to actually touch as many people as I am. So for me, the small, yeah, like the small town part of it, first off, it's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. You can't even deny that. Like it is a beautiful, beautiful area. The mountains and the greenery and the foliage when it changes and it's beautiful. But I mean, is it depressing? Yes. Is it poverty stricken? Very, very much so. Is mental health issues the main concern in our area? Absolutely. Um, Mental health, suicide, um, people just living less than? Yeah, absolutely. But I feel like I'm blessed because I get to see the other side of that. And now... I never would have thought that the people that I sit at a table with that I would, and and I do. So I get to see it from their point of view too, you know? So 
I think that you're incredible for being able to not only find recovery in the same place that you were using in, but to help other people find recovery. And that is just a testament to how strong and amazing you are. So for those of you that don't know, Jenna is a CARC, a SERPA, a rape crisis counselor, a trainer of Narcan, a recovery coach, a mental health advocate, and so much. She has a harm reduction program in Delaware County, New York, and she is just out there on the front lines every single day helping people with whatever they need. And she is literally a superhero. I, I do have a really negative bias towards that area because I've had a lot of bad experiences but that doesn't mean that I don't I don't love people from there or oh, that absolutely. it's not a good place. So I don't want that to be negative. I don't want to sound like I'm like shitting on that area because I'm absolutely not. I wish I had the drive to want to help people from that town, but it's such a trigger for me that I know my mental health would not be good if I if I was there. So for you to be able to do that is just incredible. Maybe maybe because you didn't grow up there, you know? Well, yeah, maybe because I didn't grow up there, but also, you know, as you know, like this last month has been really hard on me. I've lost a lot of people and a lot of like a couple of people that were more than just clients to me. Um, one of them was my husband's cousin's mom, you know, and it's someone you and I both know for a very, very long time. And I truly loved this person, you know, and it makes me sad sometimes. And sometimes I wish like, could one person, just one person come to me in active addiction and I can just help them all the way through and then to their recovery side, like just one person. I don't care if they still smoke weed. I don't care if they still drink. I don't care, whatever. But as long as like they're doing better and they're alive, like for me, that's all that I really care about. And sometimes I feel like, damn, I'm bad at my job. Like I must be real bad at my job because people are either dying or relapsing, you know, and it, it takes a toll on my mental health when it's like that. When when that girl passed away, like that, that shit hit me hard. Like that still bothers me to think about, you know, and like her services are this weekend. And, you know, I now get to watch her oldest son grow up without a mom at all. And it just, that shit's heavy. Like, it, it is really not, is. you are not bad at your job. There's so Sometimes. many, <laughs> there's so many issues with what you do. If you were able to get Liz the insurance that she needed, she would have been, she would have had access to medical treatment mm -hmm. and she would have, you know, had help. That's not your fault. And there's so much red tape to try to get people into doctors or treatment or whatever they need. And that is absolutely not on you. And you know what's crazy? She's passed away now, right? And it's been two weeks. Her insurance still hasn't kicked down. And that's disgusting. It doesn't start till <laughs> September 1st. Mm -hmm. So if she would have had the insurance that she needed and gotten it faster, she would have had medical treatment. And she'd still be alive more than likely. She's She was young. She's and 36. I, I just don't understand. I don't understand the policies in New York. I don't understand why they make it so hard for you. But when we're talking about addiction and mental health and people want to bicker online about abstinence being the only way and you're still <laughs> using drugs if you're smoking weed, fuck you. Mm -hmm. If you're alive and thriving, you're doing good. People are fucking dying and the internet is like all caught up in like, well, I do it this way and this is the right way and this is what works for me and you can't be sober if you do this. Shut the fuck up and right. let people get back to their lives. Let people survive. I am not going to deny myself medicine because my addiction was really bad 10 years ago. I'm not going to be in pain. I'm no longer going to white, white knuckle my mental health, which is very severe. I'm not going to I'm not going to be miserable because that's going to cause a relapse and that can cause my death. So this is the thing. What people don't realize is we have a generational point of view that 
trickles down from one generation to the next, whether it's in society, in your immediate family. Some people call it morals. Some people call it lack of morals. But it is a generational transport from each one to the next. And back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, probably from the four, like eh, 40s, 50s to about the 90s, we've had one set of morals that have been developed as far as how people look at substance use disorder, mental health, homophobia, you know, all the the things that are hot button topics right now that are in the process of changing. And those old school values have kept so many people sick in the closet, behind doors, locked away, scared, afraid, judgment, stigma, the whole nine yards. Like that era really grew judgment and stigma and just fear-mongered people. Now we finally have generations that are coming out and saying like, fuck you, bro. Like I don't, so what I'm gay? So what I drink? So what I smoke weed is my medicine? So what if, you know, I have to go and do whatever that makes me be sober? You know, a lot of people like I know for me, when I first came home and got sober, plants were really a part of my recovery because it taught me how to care for something, responsibility, nurturing. It gave me pleasure to see them grow and live and make it and survive. Yes, it became like a new form of addiction for me, but it was a healthy one. And and that's what we lose in society. There is not a human being around that does not have an addiction, whether it's gardening, plants, shopping, sex, gambling, ac- taboo ones like drugs and alcohol. Um, Our phones, food. Correct. Just there's, regular things. Right. There's there's as as human beings, we are addictive by nature. That's our that's our mentality inbred, ingrained in us as humans. It could be another humans. person, a, co- a a toxic relationship. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember just being so codependent on my ex. You guys have heard me mention him many times. Ugh. Um, and I felt like I couldn't live without this person. It was the most unhealthy, toxic, mentally abusive, sometimes physically abusive relationship. Yeah. And I didn't care. I, d- I thought love was supposed to hurt and I was addicted to that person. Yes. And I watched you know? it and it was fucking horrible. It was like yeah. a train wreck at all times. He yeah. would just continually shit on you and you would be like, but I love you. I, girl, I've been there myself. I get it. I mean, you know. Young, big, dumb. Big dick energy. What was I supposed right. to do? <laughs> Always just, that. I'm just kidding. No, but not um, really. <laughs> I was, you know, when I, I remember seeing him for the first time, and this is what I held on to for so long. I was 17 when I met Randy. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at him, he was had muscles. He was big. He's the biggest guy I had ever mm-hmm. seen at that point. And I couldn't breathe for a second. Mm-hmm. And he, like, I was shocked by this person. And I was so attracted to him. And it was like, it was just this weird, I thought, love at first sight craziness. And I was so cynical, like I still am, to like love and shit. Um, So I thought, oh my God, like this is my person. I'm never going to feel that for another person because, you know, as that relationship got crazy and I met other people, I'm like, I I could live without you. I don't even want you near Mm me. Um, I I tried to date other people and never felt close to anyone. So then it's like, what's wrong with me? You know, this must be my person still. So that took years to figure out. And then I met Reese and we have a healthy relationship and we're normal. Right. <laughs> and he's not but this breaking is the thing. my so shit. You were 17. Mm-hmm. You were 17. You were a baby. Like 21. Still. Two. Baby. 
like straight up, your brain wasn't even devel done developing. And because and of the developing I did was on drugs correct. from 13 to then. But also look how you grew up. So that's the thing. Like all this stuff plays such a huge part. And when we're in the thick of it, we can't see it. So when you grow up in a shoddy experience to begin with, with no real connection to either one of your parents, because I have the same similar situation, you know, you, you look for that because as humans, we want to connect. So the first person that made you go, ooh, that automatically you think. I mean, I, I can't imagine. I would say 97% of human beings in their life have been there. They have seen somebody that they think the sun shines out of their ass and they think they are the greatest thing, whether it's physical attraction, something about the way they look at them, the way they smell, there's something different and it just triggers different pheromones, emotions, hormones, all these things that make all those fucked up chemicals in your brain all of a sudden bubble up and you feel great. That's why love is the feel good drug. That pheromone shit, I used to not believe in it, oh, but you, bitch, you can smell, we're just animals reacting to each other's scent. Mm -hmm. That smell is real. Absolutely. It's so strong. And like I've told Reese this recently, not recently, but we've talked about this before. When I, I had left New York and I was dating Reese and my life was, I was sober, I went back and I saw Randy for the first time, gave him a hug, you know, and Reese and I were trying to help him back then, you know, get into, you know, get sober or whatever. And I thought, you don't smell the same mm. at all. You don't smell good to me at all. No. Now, this is a person that I was like, I would have bottled his smell mm -hmm. and worn it as a perfume. And now I'm like, Ugh. so it's just, it was so weird to get that perspective. And now I know like the whole pheromones thing is absolutely real. Oh, it's um, absolutely real. But the thing is, okay, so then things happen in life, right? Where you have different experiences and you, it, you have to have these different experiences so it can make you change and become the person who you are. Now, you've had all these different experiences, so that has changed you and it has also changed the chemicals in your brain. So you therefore, your mental health has leveled out more so than others on your own mm -hmm. because you're no longer in active addiction. You now have routine in your life. You have children in your life. You have other things that bring you joy, yet he's still doing the same exact thing with the same exact people yeah. except worse. And that kills me. So his, what you used to smell and be attracted to no longer is there. Yeah. That died a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But just kind of, I don't know how we got here, but that's really important for my story and my recovery because I thought I could not live without this person. Mm -hmm. So this podcast is kind of about mental health. And there were so many times where I almost killed myself because I couldn't be with this person because he was cheating on me, he stole Ugh. from me, he was leaving me, I was chasing him all around. And I just, I felt like I couldn't live without him. So I remember being 12, 13, 14 and being so severely bullied about my hair and my teeth and my clothes and I was dirt poor and I would move all around and I didn't want to be alive. But I hadn't tried to... I hadn't put that into action until I was um, like 18 and Randy had left and I wanted to just do so much heroin I didn't wake up. And these things kept happening. I didn't know I could live a sober life. I didn't know I could be happy on my own and without this person. And I didn't know that there was any kind of success or any kind of life outside of drug dealing and selling guns and doing all the crazy shit that I was doing. That's all I knew. And I didn't not, not that I didn't know that life didn't exist. It was never even a thought, not a conversation, not a thought, not a whisper. Everyone around me was selling and doing drugs. So I, it I was normal. Know. Yeah. We didn't talk about mental health. I couldn't tell anyone that I wanted to die. Could you imagine if I came to your house one day, sold you dope and was like, <laughs> by the way, I want to die. Like, what would you say? <laughs> like, whoa, I would, 
honestly, I would probably be so uncomfortable. I probably wouldn't have known what the fuck to say, but I wouldn't have let you leave. Like, so we had a different relationship. Like I genuinely cared about you. It wasn't like you were just some dude I was copping dope off of or hanging out with or whatever. Like I genuinely cared for you. And I knew, I always knew how unhappy you were because you wore it all over. Like there you couldn't deny it if you try. Like you wore it all over. It was a mask on your face at all times. I mean, even just the way you like held your back and your shoulders, you were always just so unhappy and it was it was evident. But I still wouldn't have known what to do for you or what to say. I probably would have been like, you want to do a bag or, you know, yeah. like I wouldn't have known what to do, but I definitely would have made you stay. But other than that, I wouldn't have known how to help you because nobody talked about it. So I didn't even know there was resources out there. Like, Catholic charity didn't even exist then. Like, well, maybe it did, but not in our area. Like we didn't, there was no, all there was, was judgment and stigma. We were those people. And what's crazy is like, so everyone around me, my cousins, you, everyone that I knew was all 10 years older than me. And they would have told me to suck it the fuck up, you know? And I knew that because I had been, I've been raised around people that just said that to me, just suck it the fuck up. You're fine. Shut up. You know, you're, you're good. So I knew better at the time to tell anyone that I was having mm-hmm. suicidal thoughts because I would have either been mocked at, laughed at, like yes. my cousins would have been like, take a shot, dude, shut the fuck up. Right. And that's the thing back then, like if your mental health was poor, you were having a bad day or it got to the point that you didn't talk about it, you didn't say it, but people could tell by your body language or you were crying or something. Everyone's way of dealing with that was smoke, drink shoot up, do this, do that. Like there was no- And when that fails, suck it up. Right. There was no like talk about it, like none. Back then, poor mental health to me was like shock therapy. There was no education on it, none whatsoever, none. What's crazy about like my situation, so I I was on probation from, or some form of supervision from 13 to 28, whether that was probation, pins through the school, which is person needed supervision, um, youth probation, felony probation, parole, I've done all of it. And every single thing that I was mandated to do, drug and alcohol, therapy, it was all abstinent-based. So imagine growing up on a substance, growing up on drugs, not understanding your mental health, and then every single professional around you tells you that abstinence is the only way and you can't smoke weed because that's a drug. So then in my adult life, I have to unlearn all of these things because that's not right. I have to go back in, get diagnosed. I have to go see a doctor and I have to figure out, well, pills are a trigger what do I do? You know, so that's how I found like my pathway into what works for me now, which is cannabis. But what's so crazy is like, I had to rethink and relearn myself as an adult. And I don't think that gets talked about enough either. Because Mm -hmm. when you grow up on a substance, and you don't know how to properly handle your emotions, you don't know who you are. And then you learn that you get sober at 24 or 23. And you're like, well, who the fuck am I? I don't know. (laughs) Right. And I think what people also either don't know or forget. So the human brain is not done developing until the age of 25. So from birth to 25, your brain has not fully developed. The chemicals aren't where they're supposed to be. There's there's just so much chemistry behind it. And if you're manipulating those chemicals before they're done forming and developing and leveling out, you're fucked. You know, you just added an extra like 10 years to regulate onto the back end. So for you, you stopped getting high at 23. So for probably two to five years, those chemicals, especially with doing methamphetamines, those chemicals have to now level out, clear out, 
and then reacclimate back into your body to figure out what you need so you can feel good and function on a daily basis. And with with cannabis health, I, I feel like there has been so much research and data over the last decade on on the effects, good and bad, of what it can do for a human being and what it can't do. Animals too, because there's cannabis health for animals. So for me, I choose abstinence for one reason and one reason only. I've tried other ways. It does not work for me. And I also know because I'm married to an addict, I am an addict, all my friends are either in recovery or in active addiction still, it is what it is. I can see that what works for me doesn't work for them and what works for them doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not the type of chick that because now I don't do dope, I can go out every once in a blue moon every six months and sniff a couple lines of coke if I, like that doesn't work for me, but I have friends that that really works for. And I used to be so jealous of those people. Like, what do you mean you can just do a little bit of coke on the weekends? (laughs) You're going to find me uh, naked in Thailand somewhere. Right. Like I'm I'm not that bitch. That's, (laughs) that is not for me. I'm a balls to the wall type gal. But some people really can do that and they can use certain substances responsibly. Mm -hmm. Is it for me? No. Do I judge them in a poor fashion for it? No. Am I hyper aware of when they do do it and when they don't? Yes, because I worry. Yeah. But I don't judge and it's not my place to. But I also know what works for one doesn't work for the rest. And I feel like people need to start to use that philosophy in other things in life. Like, you know, you might like tomatoes and I might not like them. That doesn't make us different. It just makes our taste different. Mm -hmm. It works for you. It doesn't work for me or vice versa. It's the same thing with cannabis use. You know, Cali Sober. It's really important to mention cannabis use because I, you guys know that I smoke. That is not good for everyone. That could trigger somebody to want to go use. And I would never say this is the pathway for everyone. It's so important to, to make sure that I reiterate that every time I say that I use cannabis in my recovery because I know damn well that some people just can't. Right. Or they have bad effects or they don't feel good or it doesn't really leave any anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, that's so. why I don't smoke. It makes my anxiety worse. And Lord knows that bitch is bad enough to begin with. Yeah. But you know, just people are just so judgmental about it. And they same thing with any type of medically assisted treatment. I know people who are like Suboxone, blah, 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 blah. It's so horrible. It's a crutch. It's this, it's that, da, da, da. I know a gentleman now it's 10 years he's been on Suboxone. He just bought his second house. He owns his own business. He has like three children. Him and his fiance just got married. Like it's doing amazing for him. I know another girl, she has five months. If it wasn't for Suboxone, she wouldn't have any months. She'd probably be dead. And I just feel like we're so judgmental about something. Like Here's the thing. Would you tell somebody with heart disease, right. do not take your heart medication? Jen, what are you doing with that heart pill? Who gave you that? You <laughs> um, need to stop it right now. I need it or I'm going to have a stroke That's and die. a crutch. You don't need right. a heart pill. Just nope. stop it right now. Like shut all the way the fuck up about mm-hmm. it because mental health is physical health. Our brain is part of our body. So who the fuck are you to tell somebody that Suboxone is not good for them? Exactly. When it saved their life. Literally. Now, if you see somebody that is not doing it right or you think that they're, you know, they are abusing their medication, Maybe just talk to them in a right. non-judgmental way and say, are you okay? Right. The goal is to live, to survive, right. you know, and to live a healthy life. The goal is not, I think that you shouldn't use mouthwash because there's alcohol in it and you're relapsing. That's what it sounds like to me when people are right. like, you can't do Suboxone. You it know, sounds that ridiculous to it, me. It is. It is. It absolutely is ridiculous. And it's as basic as this. We cannot recover six feet under. Mm-hmm 
point blank period. If we are dead, all your arguments are irrelevant. So I would rather see someone misusing their suboxone and taking it than fucking dead. Point blank. Literally. And you know, um, we're we're all gonna make mistakes. We're none of us are fucking perfect. And at the end of the day, life matters more. Um, right. And I I think a lot of the stigma and shame comes from two scenarios: just not understanding addiction and what happens, and mm-hmm. you know all of the misconceptions out there, and or someone has been hurt severely by an addict and they are angry and they are in pain mm-hmm. and they you know um, they share that anger on the internet or with people in their lives. So. I don't necessarily hate people that are shitting on people in in recovery, whatever that looks like. Um, I think I understand where it comes from, you know, as somebody that's been an addict all of my life. Um, I know where the stigma and shame comes from, and it's I would lack just, of education. It really is. It's lack of pain. education. Yes, it's lack of education, and because that, and then that pain and lack of understanding becomes a wall and then that becomes a barrier and then it just it's perpetual and it just you know it's it's just so ugly i I was at the delaware county fair last week doing free narcan trainings to anyone who was interested if they were 12 years age older and some lady who i know who she is from the community she came over and she told me i should be fucking dead all junkies should fucking die all this narcan should be thrown in the fucking trash and epipens and insulin should be free and i said we agree on something epipens and 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 um insulin should be free all medication should be free, in my opinion, because why should you have to like sell your soul to get an antibiotic? You know, I just Literally. feel like that's that's just insane. Um, but she was I, bending over the table, banging on the table, pointing in my face. One of my coworkers from Delaware Opportunities had to say, "You can go, or we can go get the sheriff." Like it's that simple. You can be an adult and you know choose to walk away. We didn't ask you to come over this table. You came over on your own free will. I don't know how you didn't get arrested that day. I would have gone back to jail. (laughs) Like, get your finger out of my face. And the question is not, um, why do junkies, air quotes, why do junkies get Narcan for free and Mm -hmm. my insulin costs $700? No, ma'am. The question is, why is your insulin $700? Stop comparing two people struggling. Right. And that is just what is so You're comparing whose sickness is better or worse than the other. And that's just disgusting. The problem is America's healthcare system. Correct. 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 I mean, and that goes back to what we were saying when we first came on. If if healthcare was free or if there was even an expediting part of it, my our friend would not be dead right now. Yeah. You know, it, it just, it all circles back. And um, honestly, I was so taken back that she was in my face like that. And then the first thing I stood up and then I was like, work. Like you're at work. Yeah. Like you have to be professional. You're at work. You can't punch this bitch in the mouth. While I was trying to collect my thoughts, my coworker was like, uh-uh, keep it moving, lady. You know, so thank God. But that was that I get hate at times, but normally it's not three inches from my face. Yeah. That's that's a different testament of my willpower <laughs> because I, I did yeah. Let's just say when I went back the next night, I brought Jared with me. I mean, he's a great bodyguard. He's, he's huge. Wonderful. <laughs> I I talk a lot of shit about. I talk a lot of shit to Jared because we're just we just have that friendship. Mm-hmm. But he's a great person, and mm-hmm. he will kill for you. Oh my and god! I would, would bring him everywhere if yeah. I was in the six oh seven. So great person to have on your side. My dogs are literally outside of happening? the door. They're so mad that I'm in here. They're like, "Why are you recording? You haven't recorded in a week, and we need you." <laughs>
<laughs> they're I like thought, trying to claw through the door. They are. They're obsessed with me. I don't understand what their problem is. Like they have Mommy. attachment disorder. <laughs> you mentioned a minute ago that you do Narcan training for 12 and up. Yes. And I know that that gets people's attention. I know people mm -hmm. are like, why would you Narcan train a 12 year old? And the sad reality of it is people have kids, people are in active addiction, mm -hmm. and you never know what these kids are going to encounter walking home or if they're at a friend's house and God forbid someone's grandmother takes too much something. Like it's just important to know. Right. There's, there's multiple reasons why. And I don't just say, hey, you're 12, I can train you. We have right. a conversation beforehand. Mm -hmm. There are some 12-year-olds that are 100% not capable of that, but then there are other 12-year-olds who are growing up in a home and have been where their mom's an addict, their dad's an addict, their grandparents are alcoholics, their brothers are using, their sisters are, their cousins, where it's just a generational curse within their life. And they've already seen people overdose and they've already seen the paramedic at their house and they've already made that phone call. Oh, so it, it's absolutely, it is the worst training that I do because I have to be very mindful of the words that I use mm -hmm. and how I do it and what is said. Definitely not my favorite to do, but it's a necessary evil sometimes, unfortunately. And I feel like I would rather be the one to do it as a mom, as a woman, as an addict, as someone who loves an addict, because I have a different level of compassion than a doctor who's literally just has no bedside manner and is just spouting off directions and there's no care and compassion. You know, I watch their faces as I do it. And sometimes they need me to slow down and they don't know to say that. And I can tell, mm -hmm. or sometimes they have a question literally like after like, okay. And I'll say like, you know, you know why you're here. Right. And they'll be like, yeah. And I'll be like, well, tell me, let's talk about it. And through that conversation, I'm able to see whether they are capable of handling what's going to come next or not. And if they're not, I'm not going to fucking push it. Like, yeah. They know what Narcan is. They know what it's about. You know, I know that I know that a lot of people are just uncomfortable with that because, you know, 12 is young, 13 is I'm young. I'm uncomfortable with that. I know. <laughs> I know. But if if you are uncomfortable with that, just teach your kids how to dial 911. Make sure they mm -hmm. know the phone numbers and the address and all of that stuff. Um, you know, just basic things. But these are really heartbreaking conversations. And when I was in active addiction, in New York, I didn't see a lot of parents doing drugs with their kids. And that really wasn't a thing um, on heroin and pills and stuff like that. When I went to Arkansas and I was highly addicted to meth and I was selling and using meth, the amount of families I saw that would get high together, I'm talking moms, teenagers, it was so heartbreaking. And I really thought I was just in this heavy darkness like this. I didn't understand how trauma worked at that level until I had seen it with my own eyes. It's insane. You know? It's insane. I mean, perfect example, my my husband's family, generational alcoholics through and through. My father-in-law, before he passed away, had 25 years sober, I believe 25, 30, around there. But he was an alcoholic. My oldest brother-in-law is an alcoholic. My other brother-in-law, meh, sort of alcoholic, really won't admit it. My husband, alcoholic. Um, his aunt, his cousins, I mean, literally generation after generation after generation, all alcoholics. Alcoholism runs insane. Brothers, cousins, fathers, sons, nephews. You know, I had known that about my, like, just to back up a little bit, my mom was an alcoholic. My uncle was an alcoholic. Her dad was an alcoholic. My cousins are alcoholics. But my mom and my uncle 
and I didn't know my grandparents on my mom's side, they all were sober. So I didn't see them drinking mm-hmm. or whatever with my my cousins. And I, I this is going to sound so ridiculous, but growing up with everyone drinking like that, I didn't know alcohol was an addictive thing. It wasn't mm-hmm. a drug. We didn't talk it was about, so normal. Right. We didn't talk about alcohol being a drug, but alcohol was the first drug that I ever took. And yep. that was the best feeling in the world to me at 12. Mm-hmm. So um, I had seen that. But I never in my, I never would think to use meth with my mom. Right. And right. I was, God, how old was I? 22 when I went to Arkansas or mm-hmm. something like that. And I had always, my whole life sold to older people, 10 years, 20 years older than me. And I remember um, selling a bag to this lady. She has since passed away. She very, very recently passed away from a heroin overdose. I really loved her. Um, but I was friends with with her and her son, and I sold her meth. And um, her son at the time was seventeen, and I was twenty two. I remember thinking, "You are so young, like mm-hmm. you're so." And everyone's fine with this here. You're yep. so young, and she's like, she she was asking her son, like, "Give her, give her the money. How much more money do you have? Like, how much can you get from her today?" And I was thinking to myself, "Where the fuck am I? What is happening?" Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, long story short, I ended up going to jail with everyone. You know, I, right. I did some time with her and she had a little bit of, of sober time when she got out and then she relapsed and died from a heroin or fentanyl overdose Right, just like two years ago or so. Yeah. And that was so heartbreaking to me. But seeing that for the first time was hard. And then that was just kind of normal in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't believe that like, there's no food here. Um, you're spending all your money with me on meth. Yep. Maybe we should eat something. Yeah, no, why? I, I <laughs> Why? Know. You know, it's crazy. So when I first met my husband, one of the first experiences that I had that when we, because he and I, I was, I had already started dabbling back in cocaine and he was too. Um, he was sober from alcohol for nine years. Like he never drank, but he was doing cocaine here and there because it wasn't his drug of choice. So it was okay. You know, the things we tell ourselves. And we're really good at lying to ourselves oh about God. addiction, aren't we? <laughs> Fantastic. So I remember he was like, here, go in the bathroom. She's going to give you something. And I was like thinking to myself, who is this woman that's going to give me something? So when I came out, I said, Jared, I was like, who, who is that? He was like, it's my aunt. Oh. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, it's my dad's sister. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm sniffing lines of cocaine with your dad's sister? This is so bizarre, you know? And then all of a sudden he's sitting like they – I come out and he's Jared sitting at the bar with someone. I'm like, who's that? And he's like, it's my cousin. It's my aunt's son. And I watch her walk over and give the bag back to her son. Like, and I was like, whoa, like, (laughs) but that's the dynamic that, and that's addiction. All of these things, like I have perspective on it now because I have a lot of sober time, Mm -hmm. but man, it was just normal. And then the further I got into addiction and the worse my addiction became and the darker it became, the more craziness I saw and I justified it all. Right. You know, like I justified everything that I did. You know, I, people assume online when you talk about selling drugs that you're selling to like children. Yeah, no. No, never once did I sell to a child. That's right. not how it works. I always, I was the youngest person in every room I was in almost, mm-hmm. almost every time. I was always selling to older consenting adults that were well, begging that, me for drugs right. I was and throwing say, money in my face. That's the thing. Like people are like, you did this, you did that. Um, they came to me. Yeah. I never once went and bashed anybody in the face, ran their pockets, said, you must buy these drugs from it me. It's the opposite. C- correct. They, they would harass right. me. Like, are you up yet? Did you finish bagging up? Are you done? Are you ready? Are you blah, blah, blah. Like, because 
they were consenting adults who had an addiction and needed to feed their disease just like me, just like you, just like other addicts. Nobody, like people who like normies, if you will, they have this misconception that you're shoving your drugs down somebody's throat. No, no, ma'am. They're seeking me out, looking for me or whoever, me, the next dealer, the dealer before, whoever has product in the area. They're they're searching you down like, like they're the fucking feds trying to find their next person because they need it. And this is absolutely not justifying drug dealing. No. Because what we did was wrong. 100%. I think for me, though, like I, I – didn't want I didn't want to be poor so bad. And I'm just trying to make people understand the situation. I didn't want to be poor and homeless so badly. And I saw men around me getting money. Uh-huh. And then I'm not having it. I'm not gonna I'm not going to live on your couch or whatever. I'm gonna get my own shit. And you know, as much as I don't like where I'm from, it was a great opportunity because all I had to do was go to the city, bring up drugs, sell it for three times more than mm-hmm. I paid for it. And I made a ton of money doing that. You and know- I it felt good to be able to buy food and sneakers and it felt good to be able to give my mom some money for her rent or put mm. groceries in my mom's fridge and make sure my cousins had ate that day. Like those things felt good. Right. And you bring up another good point. So this is also a very big part of the area that we're from and probably other places, but my main experience is there. As a female, the rules are different. They're just different. And that was the one thing that I loved about the meth world. So in my area, when I got involved with meth, it was all primarily, all the big players were women. So there were times when I would be getting introduced to a new connect or whatever, and they would be like, he can't come. And Jared would have to sit in the car and I would go in and it would be a house full of women, all with different kinds, all with different this. And I was accepted immediately. Like these women... I, I considered them friends. They brought me in open arms. They would, in the beginning, I had gotten ripped off by one of their ex-boyfriends. And as soon as I messaged her and said, hey, um, I know you don't know me, but I've heard so-and-so mention your name. Do you know how I can get a hold of him? He just ripped me off for like 500 bucks. She was like, come to my house now. And I was like, what? This is so bizarre. And I went and immediately she was like, I'm so sorry. She's like, I've heard of who you are. Come on in. But he can't come. And then finally, after like four or five times of going there, I was like, you usually keep me for like two hours and he just sits in the car. Like, can he just come sit on the couch? And they were like, he's cool. And I'm like, yeah, I live with him. He's fine. Like, he's cool. And then, you know, he wasn't judgmental and he wasn't shitty. That's one thing I have to give about my husband. Like, he gets certain things. He, he does. He, Not he, me. Everything else. <laughs> um, and he came in, he sat on the couch and then they like would do like, they would do things intentionally to see how he was going to react, you know, and they would, he, we'd all sit around and we'd smoke like out of a bong or whatever, you know, and they would give it like an obnoxious name and ask him if he would partake. But they were these powerful women and that became part of the addiction for me. And the simple fact that I was now involved in a world that better than men type of existence, that in itself was a high for me. Because in our area, well, my area now, not yours, your former area, men treat women like they're less than and that they're second class citizens. And even now in my professional career, I have to make sure my shirt's not too tight. I don't have too much makeup on. I'm not too pretty. I'm not too over the top. I'm not too this. Because as women, we're always taught, like, don't be too loud, speak up. Don't be too fat, 
be skinnier, but not too skinny because nobody wants a stick. Make sure your hair looks like this. Don't wear too much makeup, but put some makeup on you look dead. What's wrong with you? Do you feel okay? Are you feeling all right? What's the problem? You know, we're taught all these polar opposites of what we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to be. And in the drug world, it's the exact same thing, unfortunately. Men don't want to give women a chance because they're soft or because, you know, they're too emotional or a guy might try and rob them or whatever. It, it just, after a while, all of that just gets to be too much. And, it, and it's whether you're in a professional setting or in the, you know, underground world setting. And it's just a lot. So you brought up a really good point. And I, I had to have men around me mm-hmm. to, you know, if someone was short on money or whatever the situation was, I'm not going to go into like the, all of that stuff, but I had to be vicious. Mm-hmm. I had to be way worse than a man because yep. I didn't get the respect easily. So your experience with women and the meth world was the complete opposite for me. I was surrounded by nothing but men and they all spoke Spanish or Laos. So imagine me trying to understand the meth world prices on meth, how, how everything operates in a language I don't speak, you know? So it was super hard for me. And I started to learn quickly because my brain was moving a thousand miles an hour. So I learned, I learned a lot of Spanish and I, I did my absolute best to get respect. But at the same time, I was so used to needing to be violent and vicious and aggressive. And when I say that to people, they're like, you're 120 pounds. Oh, it doesn't matter. It do- a baseball bat doesn't care mm-hmm. when I take it to your head. Neither does a knife. Right. So, and I, what's so funny is like, you said knife. I, I guess I pulled a knife on somebody that I don't remember. And I like had to go back and try to remember what happened. Randy told me that I pulled a knife on someone that tried to rob me and I scared this man. It's like Jared size, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't remember a lot of these things that have happened. But at the end of the day, like I had guns. Guns don't care Mm -hmm. if I'm 120 pounds. And I'm so grateful that my anger, which was very real at the time, my anger and my drug use and my rage and my mania and my my violent, vicious tendency at the time Mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't take it there and severely hurt somebody. I think I'm the, so lucky. Yeah. I think the only reason why I didn't, in all honesty, is because I always had Jared with me. And for some reason, he, I don't know how, because he's got some rage in him, let me tell you. But in those times, he was calm. He was always calm. Like he'd be mad and he'd be, but he wouldn't be like, outwardly violent mm-hmm. mad he'd be very quiet and i could tell he was like calculating like there were times like I- i've told the story on my youtube channel like um some kid on a bike ripped us off like he grabbed the money out of my hand uh, like I-, I had it out of the car window i was going to take the bag from him and he grabbed it out of my hand and like jared drove around like a fucking silent psychopath till he found this kid then we some other girl she tried to fucking rob us she locked her door like i fucking cut the screen out of her window with a fucking knife jared kicked the screen the window in we went in through like like there were this is the chaos of drug addiction correct like this is the chaos of meth because mm-hmm. even with dope like Shit got real in certain circumstances, but not to this level. I feel like meth takes you to another level because you're already so sleep deprived and food deprived and dehydrated that your body's already working on like half its senses to begin with. And it's like rage and anger is your first thing. And I remember when I got arrested and I went into county jail sitting around with the girls playing cards after dinner one night and fucking laughing, laughing to the point that like I was crying. I thought I was going to pee in my pants, right? And I, I thought to myself later on that night, like, bro, I haven't laughed in like a year. 
like giggled like a kid. Like I forgot what humor and happiness and good feelings were like because everything was always, I got to get up that bag. I got to go and break this down. I got to do this. I got, it became hell on earth. It was just horrible. There was, I had no mental health, none. I was 82 pounds. I used to wake up every morning and cry putting clothes on because I was so skinny and nothing fit me, but I still couldn't see that my my substance use disorder was what was literally killing me. And I used to take all this time and straighten my hair so it was perfect. And my makeup, I would spend hours in front of the mirror doing my makeup. And like Jared every day would have to come in, pick me up off the floor and tell me I was beautiful. I don't know why he would say that. And encourage me to like come downstairs. And I would be like, all right, let me just smoke to calm my nerves which was doing the complete opposite. But it was horrible. Like I literally was dying and I couldn't see it. I just, when I saw your mugshot, that this was years ago, obviously, but I hadn't talked to you in a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, I had Mike in prison and I had just come home and then we always missed each other. Like you went in and I was out or I was in and you were out. (laughs) When I saw your mugshot, um, I showed it to Reese and I'm like, this is my friend. And I know I've never mentioned her, um, but we need to write her and I need to help her. Like this is horrible. Mm-hmm. And I was just heartbroken for you. But I knew that she's in jail. She's going to be okay now. Like I knew that you were going to have food and everything was going to be okay. But I saw that mugshot and I was so scared. It you was bring bad. up a really good point with emotion. Like we we don't feel anything for a long time. So to close out today's podcast, um, what advice would you give to somebody who is struggling with suicidal thoughts, manic depression, addiction? Um, what What's your you know best avenue for how to help loved ones of addicts? So loved ones of addicts, it's it's difficult because there's so many more emotions, I feel like. Like when you're when you're in it, you're able to numb it for a bit. But when you're on the opposite side of it and you're literally watching someone kill themselves, it's gut-wrenching. It's no it's relief. None. None. Like sleep isn't even relief because you have these horrible dreams. It's horrible. So there are family peer advocates um, that you can get with, and they are people who have lived life experience going through the same thing that you're going through that can help you navigate that world and set short-term goals or work on boundaries or things that help keep you okay. So boundaries are unbelievably important and super fucking hard to create because they feel like you're deserting your person and you're not. You're keeping yourself healthy enough so this way when it's time, you can do what you have to do for them. Whether unfortunately it is put them in a rehab or bury them. And that's just the God's honest truth of the disease that we're dealing with. And I hate to be so blunt about it, but it is what it is. And you have to learn how to start to process those things on a daily basis, you know, you matter too. your mental health matters too. your life matters too. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're dealing with addicts, I'll speak for myself. I was so incredibly selfish. I didn't see how my addiction affected anyone else. I thought it was mine and I would protect it at well, all costs because you can't, so hard. you know, you have, you have blinders on and all you see is the drugs, yeah. literally, you know, you don't even see us. You don't even see yourself sometimes. And being someone who loves an addict is just torturous because you think to yourself, like for me, I think to myself, you know, when my husband was struggling, bro, I can't even help keep my husband sober. Like what's go? I'm bad at what I do, you know? And, and I thought to myself, like, why can't I help him? Why can't I 
take what I know in my depths of my soul and like transplant it into him so he can feel the same strength and success that I do. But we are all different. We're all our own person and our journey and our path, whether it's being the addict or being the parent, the significant other, the child, the whatever, partner, whatever you want to call it. Everybody's different. That's why everybody's recovery looks different. So everyone's addiction looks different. We have similar stories, but there are all these twists and turns that are individual and unique. You can look up online and you can find virtual meetings for that. There are apps now that are available that people can work with. Just get with a group of people, your peers, as they're called, that are experiencing the same thing. There are Facebook support groups. There's so many things out there, you know, and and that's really where you're going to get your strength from is hearing experiences from people who have walked the same similar path as you. I can tell you right now that those in active addiction remember the love and the kindness mm-hmm. and the meal that you made them. I don't believe in tough love, No, kicking someone out, ostracizing someone, disconnecting them from your family. I don't believe in that. That's the opposite of what we need to do to heal addiction. Right. So don't enable them, but love them. You know, Don't give them cash. Give them a meal. Right. Don't I agree. give them money. Give them a ride to an interview, not a dope house. Right. You know, um, And these boundaries are really difficult because when someone's screaming in your face that they need drugs or they're going to get sick, that is so hard to deal with. But at the end of the day, you can only do so much. So be firm with your boundaries. But I think love and kindness and understanding and patience and shit just having a decent heart giving giving someone a chance to take a shower and eat something goes a long way it goes so much further than get out of my house don't come near me if you're on drugs Mm -hmm. it goes so much further and of course every situation is different every family is different i totally understand that but we remember those that we're like of course you can shower here right yeah that when it's time and when i'm ready to get clean and sober and healthy I'm going to go to you because I trust mm-hmm. you. Well, that's the thing. Like, so tough love, it's bullshit. It's, it actually, I think it causes people to continue. It's more judgment. Yeah, it's more right. stigma. And it's- so the whole part with harm reduction, so there's, there's like a saying with harm reduction and I, I kind of want to add something to it that I, an amazing woman who uh, I have the pleasure of knowing through someone has said. So harm reduction is about meeting people where they are at, literally where they are at. But the biggest part that I think people, they focus so much on the meeting where they're at, they forget this part. It's meeting people where they are at, but it is also not leaving them behind. So, you know, you meet people where they're at, but you also leave them with something to make them better, to keep them wanting to move forward and wanting to get sober, whatever that looks like, and wanting to do better and wanting to get help. So when you go and you meet somebody where they're at, whether it's living in a tent or the shelter or a hotel, you know, and you give them a box of tampons. You give them a bar of soap. You build a bridge so they can cross over. You know, first time I meet with someone, I don't talk about like, hey, what program do you want to get into? I'm like, hey, you need some tampons, girl. Does your dog need some food? Do you need some socks? Like, bro, look, I got men's deodorant. I got some Axe deodorant donated. Do you want some? And they're like, fuck yeah. You know, and then we meet together and we talk together. And then like three weeks into it, I'm like, have you ever gone to a program? I don't shove it down their throat. I ask questions. I let them be in charge because it's their life. Mm -hmm. And you you can't force it on anybody, Mm -hmm. but you can gently help them until they're ready. And then when they're ready, you can help them. You know, and that's what Jen is so good at. She's just the best at what she does. And it's 
tough because the success rate is low. That's not <laughs> your fault, but you're doing amazing. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm going to end today's episode here. If you want to follow Jen or I on any other social media platform, I will link it in the description box of this podcast on Spotify. Jen has an amazing YouTube channel where she shares her story, giving birth in prison, coming in and out of addiction and all of just the battles that she deals with. And she talks a lot about her harm reduction program in Delaware County, New York. So as always, I love you guys. I'm going to end today's episode here. Stay safe, stay in recovery, whatever that looks like to you, because there is no wrong way to recover. And I will talk at you guys in the next one.